Dialoguing on South Asia, we explore the lives of its people, hear their stories and the histories of the land, discover its beauty, and encounter its conflicts, complexities, and harmonies in a search for liberty, peace, and prosperity. Interacting with leaders, activists, academics, and common folk from the South Asian sphere about their work and their passions, their dreams and their life journeys, their immigrant experiences, advocacy efforts, religion, politics, and so much more with this, your host, journalist and author Peter Friedrich. Hand in hand, we meet and stand with South Asia. This is DOSA. Welcome. Uh, today we have a special gathering planned and we are hosting a webinar to highlight what is happening, the persecution that is occurring currently to Christians in India and what we here in America, especially as American Christians, can do uh, to respond to what's happening over there in India. We have a great lineup planned and we're going to start with our Master of Ceremonies, Mr. Jamie Bennett. Uh, Jamie Bennett, he's a he's a golden voice. He has a golden voice, which is really, I believe, made for the airwaves. Uh, but far better than that, he has a heart devoted to the love of God and of all of his creatures. And Jamie, just to give you a little bit of background about him, uh, Jamie serves as a catechist, that is, an instructor of catechumens at St. Mark Greek Orthodox Church in Boca Raton, Florida. He also hosts the Bad Books of the Bible on Ancient Faith Radio. In addition to his religious duties, he is the chief lyricist of the positive hip-hop group Royal Ruckus. Jamie holds degrees in education and biblical studies, and he is currently pursuing a Master of Theological Studies through the Antiochian House of Studies. It's a lot of studies. Professionally, Jamie is employed at a forensic engineering firm within the insurance industry, and he resides in South Florida with his wife and his son, where they enjoy the vibrant community and beautiful surroundings of that area. And so with that, I welcome you, Jamie, and pass the mic on to you uh, to proceed as our Master of Ceremonies for the event. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's an honor to be here with all of these panelists. I am eager to hear what they have to say on this very important topic. Um, you know, I don't intend to play much of a role here except to introduce each of these people and then join in our audience uh, in listening in. But I do want to make a few remarks before we get started, because why are we here? Um, it occurred to me that this is actually a very timely meeting. The voice of the martyrs has just this year reclassified India as a restricted nation in its 2024 global prayer guide. This is a direct result of growing extremism and persecution of Christians by radical Hindus with and with the government playing a complicit role at the very least. Despite many public statements being made about this uh, against religious discrimination, um, India's leaders have really passed laws in several states that have um, hindered even the conversion of, of Hindus. And along with this, there's growing support for uh, such laws at the federal level within India. And this affects the on-the-ground reality of the Christians who live there. These laws have been used actively against pastors, against evangelists, church planters of various denominations. Uh, 
Yet, despite all this persecution, India's churches are growing. So today we're going to hear from a panel of speakers who are going to bring light uh, to these issues. Our first presenter is the very Reverend Dr. John Gillians. He's the former chancellor of the Orthodox Church in America. He's also the current vice president of the Orthodox Theological Society in America. 40 years in the priesthood, he's served in Australia, Greece, England, Canada, and the United States. He has doctoral degrees in theology from several esteemed universities. He's the co-founder of the Institute for Orthodox Christian Studies in Cambridge, England. Uh, he continues to be a visiting professor. He also taught at the, uh, I'm not sure how to say this, Sheptistic. He'll have to correct me when it's his turn. I'm sorry. Uh, Institute for Eastern Christian Studies in Canada and St. Vladimir Seminary and Fordham University. The list goes on. Uh, he has is quite accomplished. And especially he is the author of Divine Guidance Lessons for Today from the World of er Early Christianity. Uh, welcome, Father Dr. John Gillians. Thank you very much. And it's the Sheptitsky Institute of Eastern Christian Studies. Uh, it's mainly uh, Ukrainian Catholic, but uh, it's, it's ecumenical in that it brings Orthodox and Eastern Catholics uh, together. Um, it, it's only in the last couple of years uh, that I've become more directly aware of contemporary Christian life in India, and even more recently, the extent of religious oppression uh, in India, so I'm honored to be uh, with all of you uh, who have a lot more uh, experience uh, in this whole area. But I have to say that all my life, I've been conscious of anti-Christian persecution. My grandmother, who was the daughter of an Orthodox priest, fled Russia in the wake of the 1917 Communist Revolution and came as a refugee to Canada with two toddlers, my mother and her sister. I was raised in the Russian Orthodox Church and was always aware of the continuing persecution of believers and other dissidents. Tragically, after a period of freedom in the 1990s, Russia has again closed down, suppressed dissidents like the newly reposed Alexei Navalny, and is pursuing a horrific war against Ukraine, but this time with the blessing of the Patriarch of Moscow. Today, our webinar focuses on Christians in India, but we need to speak up for all those anywhere in the world being threatened or violently attacked for their thought, conscience, or religious faith. The United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights states in Article 18 that everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief, and freedom either alone or in community with others, and in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance. Article 19 goes on to say that everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. We here today and with our brothers and sisters in our churches, we need to insist that our countries and religious institutions uphold this standard 
even if, if we as Christians disagree with the thought, conscience, or religious faith of others. Insistence on freedom for all is the only protection against one group suppressing, oppressing, and persecuting others. As we consider the situation in India today, I've been asked to begin with a prayer, and I've chosen Psalm 142. This is prayed at every evening service, evening Vesper service, in the Orthodox Church, and seems fitting as we consider the plight of our Christian brothers and sisters in India. Let us pray. With my voice, I cry to the Lord. With my voice, I make supplication to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit is faint, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look on my right hand and see. There is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for me. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am brought very low. Save me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Amen. Thank you, Father John. Our next presenter is Peter Friedrich, who is a journalist and author focused on current and historical events in South Asia, especially the rise of the Hindu nationalist movement and its connections to American sociopolitics. Some of his books have been translated into at least half a dozen Indian origin languages, and his work for the rights of Indian minorities has even drawn the wrath of the current Indian government. He is currently a catechumen in the Orthodox Church in America, and he will speak briefly about the big picture of how and why oppression is taking over India, especially for religious minorities, including Christians. Thank you, Jamie, and I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, may I please open by quoting lyrics from the singer and the actor Jonathan Jackson, who also happens to be an Orthodox Christian here in America. In his words, I've got a dream. I think it's a righteous dream. It's for the people. It's for the people. But the days are evil. I've got a song. I think it's a healing song. It's for the people. It's for the people. But the days are evil. How are we going to break through? How are we going to break through the noise? The noise, the noise. I've got a word. I think it's a timely word. I've got a prayer. I think it's an honest prayer. Yeah, I'll keep on singing until I've got no voice in me. The days are indeed evil in India, particularly the days are growing more and more evil. And yet there are far too few abroad who are dreaming, singing, getting a word or a prayer for how to break through the noise about what is going on with the people over there in India. In fact, most, speaking especially from my experience here in the U.S., seem entirely unaware of what is occurring in India. You see, India today is not actually just all about Gandhi, Bollywood, yoga, and, and maybe also curry. Global ignorance about the situation in, in, in India 
It's disturbing. It's disturbing for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that India is now the world's most populous nation. For people who believe in basic human rights and civil liberties, it's also deeply concerning considering that India, while continuing to advertise itself as the world's largest democracy, is on the path to stripping all of those things away to the extent that some, including myself, would tearfully recategorize India today as the world's largest fascist nation. Here in America, we are all too familiar with willy-nilly tossing about of terms like fascism, fascism, applying them to any and all political opponents from whatever political spectrum. And yet, when I use the term for modern India, it is utterly without hyperbole. I could extensively launch into a dialectic about how the regime which has dominated India for the past decade and appears, barring a miracle, likely to do so for many years to come, is one whose origins include direct inspiration and even interactions with the original fascists in Europe. But that's a conversation for a different day. Instead, I want to first express my gratitude to all of those who have convened here today for this event, focused on discussing the ongoing, escalating, and indeed skyrocketing persecution of Indian Christians. By design, everyone speaking tonight, except our two subject matter experts who are graciously joining us from India, is an American Christian. Most of you, in fact, are clergy members. It's delightful to see that our speakers tonight are from all three major Christian traditions, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. Moreover, all of you are from disparate systems or backgrounds, ranging from the conservative to the liberal and the traditional to the progressive. The unifying factor, I believe, is your or our willingness to take up the call of Jesus Christ to speak for the least of these. For almost the past 20 years, I have worked intimately with Indians around the world, particularly the Indian American diaspora, to research, document, and expose violations of human rights in India. Over the past decade, since the Hindu nationalist regime assumed power in India, the largest threat to human rights in that country, particularly the right to religious freedom, has become the Hindu nationalist movement. In that time, here is what I have experienced. You see, I'm a journalist and I'm an author working in this space who actually, like Jonathan Jackson, the singer and the actor I quoted at the outset, also just happens to be a Christian. I was raised a Presbyterian, became an Anglican, and I am now in the process of hopefully being received into the Orthodox Church. Along the way, as I have been working, this is what I have experienced. Repeatedly, repeatedly, Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, and others from India have approached me with concerns about what's happening in India and basically said, Peter, you're a Christian. What can you do to get the church in America talking about what's happening to Christians in India? Yeah, you heard that right. Over and over and over again, I have had deeply religious 
non-Christians from India approach me and ask me to do what I can to mobilize American Christians to, pardon my French, give a good goddamn about what is happening to their sisters and brothers back over there in India. Now, my response has generally been to point out that, yes, I am a believer, but basically that means I want to follow Jesus and I go to services on Sunday. It does not mean that I am plugged into what you might call the political networks of American Christianity. And so all I'm left with is either knocking on strangers' doors or else appealing to the people that I already know. Now, as I begin to wrap up, I want to share with you what I've attempted to do when it comes to the knocking on strangers' doors aspect. Uh, two things. First, a while back, I went to a regional pastor's breakfast at the invitation of and accompanied by a member of that group. He introduced me to an influential pastor of a mini mega church, if, if that's the term, if that's what you call it. A tall, handsome, charismatic man. I gave him my spiel, I gave him my materials, and the pastor swiftly patted me on the back, gave me a giant grin, and said, I'll bless you, paraphrasing him, I'll bless you, I'm so glad that you're doing this. And I bit my tongue to stop an expletive, and my thought was, no, pastor, I don't bleeping want your affirmations, I want your ear, that you would be willing to hear what is happening in India, and if so moved, be willing to get off your rear and do something about it. Secondly, I was introduced to multiple Christian clergy through an Indian-American contact who set up coffees and lunches with them so that I could explain what is happening in India. Probably about 80% of them were totally ignorant of the issue. I distinctly remember one. Here's why. I had spent about 90 minutes having lunch with this wonderful retired pastor from a mainline Protestant denomination. I thought that I had adequately laid out the situation already, but then he stopped and he asked me, so what does persecution of Christians in India look like? Job or housing discrimination? Social boycotting? What? I paused, perplexed, because I thought I'd already explained it. But then I was like, well, yes, that is, that is part of it. But no, here's what it looks like. On Sunday, as the congregation is gathering for services, a mob, typically armed and often accompanied by the police, assembles outside of the sanctuary. They burst in. They begin smashing everything. They start beating the pastor and the congregants. If the police aren't already there, then the mob hauls everyone down to the station, turns them in, and the police slap charges on the victims instead of the perpetrators. That is the image. That is what persecution of Christians in India looks like. And I saw the light bulb go off in this pastor's head. And he said, Oh, like the Nazis? Yes, yes, exactly like the Nazis, sir, I said. So what is happening to Christians in India today is exactly what, like what the Nazis did to those that they hated in, in, in the age of the Nazis, with mobs on the streets who are complicit with the state. So a point from all of that. 
The Christian speakers assembled here tonight not only represent those American Christians who I have, thank God, been able to personally connect with on this issue in the past, but they also represent, speaking from my experience in this field of almost 20 years, very nearly the entirety of every non-Indian American Christian that I'm aware of who is talking about the issue at all. To rephrase that a little bit, basically everybody here assembled, particularly the clergy, constitute almost everybody in America who I'm aware of, who is actively speaking about what's happening to Indian religious minorities, let alone Indian Christians. That's both depressing uh, that we are so few, although we could look to the story of Gideon, but it's also inspiring that we should thus be uniting at the present moment. And so it is my hope and it is my prayer that tonight will be a chance for us to stand in solidarity, to network, and proceed from here to do so much more. Or as one great man from India once said, let tonight hopefully be a beginning for us to educate, agitate, and organize. Lastly, lastly, in context of India, I do speak, we do speak tonight primarily about Indian Christians. But God's honest truth is that the victims in India are not just Christians, but also Muslims, Sikhs, Dalits, and anyone else, including any Hindus and the non-religious who happen to object to the totalitarianism of the situation. Yet here we are all gathered as Christians. And what I would ask us to do tonight is to focus on the persecution primarily of Christians in India. And why, why them exclusively at the moment? at the moment. Well, because as Christians, we are certainly required to care for all those who are persecuted and even to love our enemies. But the thing is, if we can't even be bothered to at least care about our own enough to raise a voice for them, then how can we even begin to care for those who are not of us, who are also being persecuted? But I remind you, the interesting thing about India, what's happening there today, is that actually currently almost everyone facing persecution is facing it by the same source, at the same time, and for mostly the same reasons. Thus, whether we speak about persecution of Christians, Dalits, dissidents, Muslims, Sikhs, or others, doing so actually simultaneously benefits all of the others. And so this, then, is my appeal to you. Let us go forward after this night, after this day, wherever you are, willing to at least stand up and speak out for our own. And so as I look forward to hearing from our distinguished panel of assembled speakers, I once again say that the days are evil in India, but I do rejoice that united together in the spirit of love of and in Jesus Christ, we can see whether we live to see it or not, a bright future for India. I once again say that I'm dreaming, singing, getting a word or a prayer for the people. But you see, the days are evil, so how are we going to break through the noise? Well, if we listen and are moved to act on this particular issue, I think we can easily break through the noise with the commitment to, in singer-actor Jonathan Jackson's words, 
keep on singing until I've got no voice in me. If we do that, we may yet see India's days move from evil to unimaginably, unimaginably beautiful. So with that, thank you again, Jamie, and I look forward to hearing from our panel. Yeah, thank you for that that frank but hopeful presentation. I think that really sets up the rest of our conversations very well. Our next presenter is Dr. John DeIsle. He studied to become a physicist before becoming a senior journalist turned full-time human rights advocate. Now, he's been a journalist for the past 55 years working across the world. He was even a war correspondent in Lebanon and Sri Lanka. He spent the last several decades as an activist, especially working to document communal conflict and to bring peace. He is the former president of the All India Catholic Union, which is the oldest organization for Catholic laity in Asia. And he remains a well-known and respected figure throughout the secular and Christian society in India. So we're delighted to have him today, and he will offer us a bird's eye view of what is happening in India. Welcome, sir. But I do greet you. It's early Indian morning. My sister and my brothers in Christ to this, I think, very important meeting. And without disparaging or belittling his status and stature and its importance, my one millionth and fifth meeting in the last 25 years or so, talking to international audiences about the Indian situation. <clears throat> and before I begin, let me pay my tributes to Father Dr. John Wallamatam of the Catholic Bishops Conference of India, who founded this whole study of the persecution of Christians in India in 1990. And I was his first student and colleague. And collectively, both of us started documenting violence and have not, unfortunately, been able to stop. He passed away. I continue to do now almost alone. Others have taken up the Evangelical Fellowship of India, the ADF in India, which is diametrically opposite the ADF in uh, the U.S. and many other organizations, including the United Christian Forum. But no mainline church documents Indian Christian persecution, not even the persecution of their own people. The Catholic Church in its three dimensions in India, the Latin Roman Catholic, of which I am one, the Syro-Malabar Eastern Chaldean Catholic, the Syro Malabar, the Western liturgical Catholic, three Catholic groups totaling about 20 million Christians don't document it at all. The Anglican communion and its variations, including the Methodists and the Baptists and all, haven't a clue how to begin. Richard Howell, when he was in the EFI, was involved because EFI was involved and the EFI remains the only large body doing an annual report on Christian violence. And that is one reason the voice looks so muted. My almost annual reports to every international agency possibly goes unread because every time I go to the same person, he says he's never heard it before and say, my dear friend, you heard me personally, complete with beard and mustache and he feigns ignorance. I think Largely, the reason why India is invisible to the world, particularly the Christian world, which is also the world 
making the largest weapon industry, which is also the world leading in the new artificial intelligence and the old silicon explosion, which is also a, a region which employs much of India. And this nexus, this umbilicus, this connect, this unholy marriage, its components are, India is one of the biggest buyers of weapons from the US, from France, from England, from Germany, from Israel. It also buys from the Soviet measure, Union for good measure. It's one of the biggest markets outside of China for anything that you manufacture. From false ideas and fake news, all the way to micro details of electronics, all our phones, everything else uh, that we use, barring Indian condiments. You are growingly a military ally, whether it's against China in the China Sea or it's against uh, Iran in the Indian Peninsula or whether it is uh, uh, against enemies unseen in the Mediterranean and the Indo-Pacific Oceans. And uh, what I've come to the conclusion is that no Indian in particular is ignorant, be he in India or be he in the US, where there are 20 million now. The US population of Indians is about almost as large as the Christian population in India, almost, if not quite. And, and that's something that you need to ponder over. He or she is in a state of denial, as are international agencies, as is the White House. I've been in touch with them, as I said, since 1990, 30 years, 30, almost 35 years, I would say. The only time they woke up for a few minutes was when the Australian missionary Graham Stewart Strange and his sons were burnt alive on 22nd and 23rd of January, 1999. That died out after a while. Films were made. Tons of money was exchanged. The idea died out. The fact that he was killed by the same forces that persecute and threaten to kill me and others like us. The forces are alive, the same mechanism, the same finances, the same organizations, the same people on the ground. But Dara Singh, the killer of stains, ruled and murdered the others of his group. Very, 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 very active now. They still murder. Nobody is bothered anymore. And we need to ponder why it is so. Is it because we have become untouchable in a very positive way that you dare not touch us, lest we shame you by defying you? Let Mr. Modi tell the US president, whoever is us, go away. If you don't go away, I will not buy. I will not sell. I will not assist you. I think today India is in a state where it can unfortunately stand up and defy world criticism, defy international odium. And if push come to shove, would be able to defy sanctions. Not that they have ever sought sanctions, because while the rich are very rich in India, the poor are very poor and numerous. 60% of India is starving. I would not want any structure which would hurt them more. Having built this thing, 
let me document it in today's world. I mean, we're not going to go into the past. We're not going to talk of Kandamal and how Peter first came to India. And when I, I met him when he first came to India, he was a young, handsome boy. He's an older, handsome person now. Uh, but his inquisitiveness and his steadfastness is an example to any human activist, anyway, including my brothers and sisters in India, who for most of them, it's a job, it's an employment, it's a contract, it's some setup NGO that they have funded by Americans or Europeans or even by Indians, and they can move on. They can move on from Christian persecution to PETA, the persecution of animals, and they can then go on to environment and maybe to something else, who knows? Some join the police, that's also a fact. But let's look at what's been happening in Mr. Modi's 10 years. What's happened in this 10 years that Mr. Modi has been around, and he's not the only man of his idiom who's been around. His leader, Atal Bihari Bajpayee, reigned for seven years at the turn of the century. Exploded bombs, killed Muslims, did everything. Father and son, a direct relationship I could trace for you. So this is the second big coming of this force. They were empowered by the first coming and they discovered how it is possible to do, go about killing people and yet pass muster. The massacre of Muslims in 2002 in Gujarat, where Mr. Modi was the chief minister in charge, was it's elaborate for how you can get away with murder elsewhere in the country. So what happened? last year. Anywhere between 600 to 800 Christians were harassed, beaten up, killed, the churches burned, their women taken to jail, including little children, the pastors arrested, Hamas, Catholics, Protestants, Evangelicals, Free Church, you name the denominator and more, and they were there. It's not that they were picking on any. And they so there's three cases a day shooting up during Easter and during Christmas, when the church is visible. And today it has come to such an impasse that state upon state is criminalizing evangelization, not conversion, evangelization. Not if you're a white priest, but even if Richard Howell or I were to go to Assam, we'd be jailed. The state of Assam is the gateway to the Far East. State upon state, has brought laws that if we speak, my house can be demolished for no rhyme or reason, but just to silence. It's happening to people, it's happening to Muslims much more than it's happening to Christians, but it is happening to Christians. People who have been arrested for no rhyme or reason include Catholic nuns, Catholic fathers, Catholic institution principals, Presbyterians, evangelicals, you name the denomination and its inward Indian version, somebody or the other is in jail, struggling for bail. You celebrate with us every time a jailed Christian comes out to breathe. Please understand, he's out enlarged on bail. He's not exonerated. The case is not over. He can go back to jail the day after tomorrow. Almost every Christian today who was in jail and is out today is out on bail. The cases don't come up. They don't come up in the Supreme Court. They don't come up in the state Supreme Courts. They don't come up in the smaller courts. Delayed justice, not responding. 
Today is a situation where there's no Christian in senior office who can counsel Mr. Modi. There's no member of the Christian community in the Commission for Religious Minorities, which oversees the human rights of religious minorities. There's no senior cabinet minister in the union cabinet. And there's practically, other than the Far East and other than Kerala, there's no Christian minister in office in any of maybe 25 Indian states. There's no Christian in, in, in governance in the election commission in, in the Supreme Court, in most of the high courts, the commandants of the major Indian militaries. There's none. So today we are politically disempowered, we are administratively neutered. And in terms of civil liberties, including the voice, we are silenced. So how can I speak? How can you say Richard is here and, and John is speaking? This is uh, allowed freedom. They have the news here. They can jerk it anytime. A few of us, a handful, 20, 30, speak. The rest of the 30 million are silent. Our leadership, our cardinals, our, 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 our general secretaries, our other officers have been beaten into silence. They and their skeletons are under inquiry. The most smart Indian detective agencies are after them. The wives, their cousins, the institutions, the colleges are all under scrutiny. The man knocks on the door every day. And that knock totally disempowers the voice. So can you be my voice? Is the question we ask US President when they come to India, ask the Secretary General, the Special Rapporteur, the Ambassador at large, the international offices, your own ambassador in India. We ask them every day. We knock every day. The rule of law doesn't exist for religious minorities. And of them, the Christian community is the most vulnerable. I thank you for this opportunity and I'm grateful that you have been listening to me in such silence. Thank you for sharing those those words and sharing your firsthand experience. Uh, you speak with a knowledge uh, that, that we don't, many of us on this panel uh, don't have that firsthand knowledge. So thank you very much for that. Um, our next panelist is Reverend Peter Cook. He serves as the executive director of the New York State Council of Churches, which represents approximately 7,000 congregations across that state. Since 1893, the council has advocated for more just laws, uh, particularly to aid the poor and the disenfranchised. Reverend Cook also serves as co-chair of the India Working Group, a collaborative within the International Religious Freedom Roundtable, where he helps to reflect the New York Council of Churches' commitment to international freedom and human rights in India and Israel-Palestine. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very grateful to join this distinguished and diverse group of Christian faith leaders speaking about the massive suppression of human rights and religious freedom of Christians in India, and also the, the freedom of those in the United States and around the world who experience this oppression as they seek to advocate against discrimination 
in India. I am a white male clergy person who is ordained in the United Church of Christ, a very um, uh, liberal denomination which uh, traces its roots back to uh, the pilgrims, um, but also to uh, the German reform people and uh, German evangelicals um, uh, in the United States. And uh, we are a, a very uh, strong ecumenical body, which has historic connections to the largest ecumenical church in the world, which is the Church of South India, which springs from the Methodist, Presbyterian, Congregational, and Anglican churches, all which in India have come together to form what we know as the Church of South India. Those churches were part of a vast Christian missionary movement beginning in the 19th century, which sought to offer the gospel through the construction of um, churches and religious education, but is probably best known for the establishment of schools and hospitals that were accessible to anyone, regardless of their faith or sex or station in life. When I'm asked about my connection to India, I proudly speak of my religious tradition. But I also like to say that I have gone to India personally one and a half times. The half time part came when I led a delegation to India um, and uh, we discovered because we were Christian that nine of us were harassed and interrogated at the Chennai airport in southern India before being sent back home on the next plane. We were told that Christians were not welcome in India. And I believe there are a number of reasons that they said that um, to us, a number of reasons why they are not terribly interested in having Christians in India. Um, and the, the, it overall is because <clears throat> um, we really, uh, by our very being, uh, challenge the uh, harassment and oppression of the Indian government. More specifically, Christians, by definition, challenge the caste system. Second, we are perceived as a threat because we might advocate for the rights of Dalits. Third, that we may convert Hindus to Christianity just by offering food, education, and health care to those in need, which might 
invoke in them sympathies which would lead them to convert. Fourth, that we might bring money into the country which would improve the circumstances of those in need and which might elevate them from their misery and challenge the status quo. And I would just say that if you have any doubts about that, just take a look at how the Indian government is uh, really cracking down on churches' ability to receive foreign contributions through what's called the FCRA. Now, I had a, a, couple, uh, a couple others that I think uh, Christians, given our stance on equality, um, are threatening, particularly when we embrace the rights of women and also people who are, are gay and lesbian. And this is also a threat to the Indian government. Given our liberal faith, we really aren't particularly a threat to Hinduism, or for that matter, any religion. But we are a threat to the Hindu nationalist state, which twists the Hindu faith and merges it I think with corporate interests in order to exploit people for their financial gain and maintain wealth inequality. And it also, uh, Hindu nationalism becomes a tool to uh, really embrace militarism as another form to maintain their power. I did manage to get in the next year into India without incident, and I had a wonderful time there, and I did not experience any personal harassment, but I did hear a lot of stories from others about fear that they experience, and I do stay in touch with um, Christian brothers and sisters who are in, in, who go to India who report on increasing levels of intimidation which are directed uh, towards them and others. Indeed, we are getting reports now that in Northeast uh, India, they are really cracking down on white uh, missionaries in expelling them from the country. <clears throat> but uh, I really promised to myself and others in India that uh, when I returned to the United States, I would do everything I could to speak against nationalism and advocate for the human rights and religious freedom of Christians and indeed all religious minorities. That commitment and my liberal Christian leanings bring me here tonight. From the depth of my being, I am inalterably opposed to any government, any government seeking to nationalize one religion at the expense of all other religions. One of the wonders of India is that they have a secular constitution that does not institute one religion above all other religions. It allows for the freedom of religious expression. And yet, 
The Hindu nationalist government ignores their constitution, and it is particularly heinous in the way it operates. It also springs from some other forms of nationalism, which are equally problematic, and especially, we must confess, Christian nationalism, which drinks from the waters of anti-Semitism, white supremacy, and German fascism, and dare I say, Christian and Jewish Zionism, another form of nationalism. It's really our duty as Christians to oppose nationalism in all of its forms, and as a tenet of our Christian faith, to seek the liberation of all people. This is central to who we are, and we need to do everything we can to speak up and um, challenge uh, policies and practices wherever we see it, and to give a voice for those who are oppressed. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Cook, for sharing your perspective, and especially for raising the constitutional question. I think that's an important one that that uh, that needs to be raised. Our next panelist is Reverend Dr. Richard Howell. He is an ordained uh, clergy member of the Evangelical Church of God. His service includes being the General Secretary of the Evangelical Fellowship of India from 1997 to 2015, and holding the position of General Secretary for the Asia Evangelical Alliance for 10 years. Additionally, he served as Vice President of the World Evangelical Alliance for four years, as well as a founding member of the Global Christian Forum. Now, currently, he is president of the Caleb Institute of Theology located near Delhi, India. He will offer insights today on exactly what is happening to Christians in India and maybe even give us some stories about their oppression. Thank you very much for the privilege to share what I personally know. Um, I love India. I'm proud to be a citizen of India. It's a constitutional democracy. My citizenship gives me the right to love India, but also to speak, the freedom to speak. The challenge is this freedom is being curtailed massively, as Dr. John Deal and others have already narrated. Uh, the church continues to grow, and the church continues to suffer for the worship Jesus Christ. I'll give you two examples of uh, most recent suffering. A student at Caleb Institute, Bhagwan, <laughs> Bhagwan is his name. He studied with us for one year and went back to his village in Punjab, Lambi village. And on 19th of uh, January, he went to inaugurate, consecrate a land where the church building was to be constructed near Jalandhar. He and few others were attacked. Pastor Bhagwan was attacked with swords and sticks he fell unconscious on the ground, was taken to hospital, underwent uh, surgery of the skull. Doctors tried their level best to save him, but they could not. So attacked on the 24th of January in Jalandhar, 
on 19th february in spite of all efforts he died died as a martyr for his faith pastor bhagwan attacked on 24th january 2004 suffered skull injuries all over the body beaten up with sword and sticks died as a martyr on 20 on 19th february in cmc lutiana where doctors couldn't save his life what was his fault that he preached christ served the poor he comes from a poor poor family poor people throng to worship christ they receive a message of hope of freedom of being loved of being cared as a member of the body of jesus christ that was the only reason that he became a threat to others and uh, they put him to death i'll give you another example a very painful example the first agricultural institute in india the first ever was established by an american missionary who came to india saw the plight of farmers went back to america studied agriculture and established an agriculture institute in naini alabad what is now known as prayagraj dr professor r b lal the famous soil scientist who studied in america raised that institution to become a university along with that he has the freedom to worship christ there was a gathering that came known as yesu darbar the court of jesus christ he was harassed false cases put against him he got relief from the supreme court then he went back to his position as the vice chancellor of a university but again uh, the government thought that to be an opportunity to arrest him and put him behind the bars a false case was levied against him he is in prison for no rhyme or reason false case he was involved in murder there was no proof cct camera doesn't show that he was along with goons and wanted to attack a group of people falsehood and put behind the bars with a in jail not only that the yesu darbar which was running for 24 years 24 long years where people came in thousands stayed there they were fed there they worshiped there from all over was stopped by police by force people were not allowed to come into the ground and worship christ in 2023 the record shows there were two incidents of violence every day against christians two incidents now these are reported things unreported could be massive dr john dial my good friend who mentored me in this area of religious advocacy was the first one to record the list of those being persecuted there is loss of life bereavement physical injury panic anxiety depression suicidal ideas job loss financial loss loss of property and work opportunity due to their faith or connection to a faith based identity that is being you are a christian there are three things that happen for persecution to take place first is disinformation so christians are a threat to the nation 
they are foreigners they worship a foreign god that leads to discrimination and discrimination leads to persecution if you want to kill a dog which is healthy and a pet you start saying he's a mad dog and therefore needs to be killed that is exactly what has happened the narrative that christians are a threat they have forgotten all the contributions that the church in india has made and continues to make empowering the poor that's there and then as i said separation from family children growing up in fear that's a hard reality fear of practicing their faith openly fear of encountering violence for wearing symbols of faith these days if you carry two bibles in a state of uttar pradesh the police can catch you why are you carrying two bibles one for you and one to convert my dear friend that's the state of affairs where minorities and christians in particular political disenfranchisement we have tribal communities in india and tribal communities enjoy certain government benefits now the the narrative that is being spread is this if you start worshiping christ you are you cannot no longer enjoy the benefits of being a tribal just because they worship christ freedom of religion freedom to worship is guaranteed in the constitution of india that's why i said i'm happy but a voice needs to be raised so that we safeguard the freedoms don't close your eyes to what is happening that would be a suicidal thing for community at large speak for everybody's freedom everybody's everybody's freedom in kashmir brahmans were persecuted they had to leave we speak for them we speak for dalit we speak for everyone human rights are for all justice and freedom for all that is our mantra we are not biased and we don't close our eyes to what is happening you see the church in the 19th century grew under colonialism amid colonial india amid the rising national awakening led by foreign funded western missionary societies they were in control of the transmission and direction of missions the mission birthed mainline churches and uh, an american missionary calls it the latin captivity of the church the church growth recently is post colonial encountering militant hindu nationalism and is happening without western organized structures including recognition by the academia the growth is occurring amid widespread instability it needs to be termed as the growth of indian christianity for it is indigenous it involves considerable indian resources and indian religious categories to communicate the gospel of jesus christ that is what is happening and the growth as i said is happening most unconventional it's happening in the families now i can give you statistics well known there are 10 million bhojpuri christians who live in uttar pradesh and bihar area 10 million have turned to christ 
and they come from all sorts of caste and religion the hindu bhojpuris the high caste the low caste and the muslim bhojpuris are worshiping christ are worshiping christ a media narrative a media narrative in india will never report it but they they control they create narratives which leads to disinformation and therefore persecution of the church in india but thank god the churches continue to grow and the churches continue to witness for jesus christ and my dear friends i appeal to you as citizens of a free country the bold and the country of the bold and the brave the free and the brave speak speak in love stand up for human rights stand up for justice for all and freedom for all and one last thing i'll share and i'll close christian ngos those who are serving the poor children in particular the poor in particular have been removed from the scene to undermine the impact of christian influence christian influence has become a threat we don't go out to convert jesus said i was hungry and you fed me i was naked and you clothed me that's our motivation to serve india not to convert india to serve india people respond to the love of christ christ is very attractive he met with the prostitutes and delivered them met with a samaritan lady who believed in discrimination you know i am a samaritan you are a jew he said give me a cup give me a drink how empowering was that now you remove our influence from the society who is going to empower the powerless the dalits and the marginalized the poor and the women and even as it was said for for those who have different sexual orientations what do you do speak up there is a god who rules sovereign god who rules he knows what's happening we are like daniel's daniel was a slave in a in a country that was not his own but he rose to power he was resilient he was faithful he served but when it came to worship he said oh king i worship the living god whatever be the cost i will never give up my worship of the living god that's what we say we love india we serve india but we will worship the lord who loves everybody who doesn't discriminate between people sadrak mesak abednego went into the fiery furnace but the fourth man the son of god was there with them that's what we believe we are called to love we are called to serve whatever be the cost the church will continue to do it because we have believed in the lord one who was crucified for our sake who rose again a narrative doesn't end with crucifixion a narrative ends with resurrection we have a hope which we spread jesus is alive and we are the children of god who called us to love and serve all thank you very much thank you reverend dr hal for your impassioned presentation for sharing both harrowing stories but also giving us the hope of the light of christ uh you really have actually put a focus on uh what's at stake 
So thank you for that. Uh, next up is Father Joshua Lichter. He's an Anglican priest in Northern California. He's been involved in advocacy advocacy work for persecuted minorities in India for about 10 years, for over 10 years, actually. He's very passionate about human rights. Um, he also has a love for the promotion of the arts, and he co-owns a coffee shop with his wife, Rachel. They host live music. Um, he has a heart for those who don't feel like they fit in. And uh, he also enjoys comic book con conventions and Yoda and encourages you to ask him about it sometime. It's nice to have a little bit of lightness there as well. So, Father Joshua, uh, welcome. Thank you. And uh, thank you to everyone else who's shared so far. I'm definitely going to take out of this discussion uh, an excitement that our narrative does not end with crucifixion, but with resurrection. So thank you. Thank you very much, um, Reverend Hal, for sharing that. That was absolutely beautiful. I didn't know I was going to get uh, a nice homily during this discussion, but I'm very glad that I did. That was wonderful. So um, as as, uh, as you said, I've been, been passionate about this and involved with this for the past 10 years. And um, in 2017, a pastor in uh, Punjab named uh, Sultan Masih was assassinated outside of his church. And I felt just this overwhelming personal connection to him. Never met him. I just heard his story and read about him after I found out, you know, he had been murdered and saw in him a person that shared a lot of things in common with, with myself. He cared for the poor and the needy and the marginalized in his community. And he believed passionately that the gospel message could instill a sense of value and worth in people that they otherwise did not have. He was a Christian, being obedient to Christ, making disciples of all nations, and that's a message that honors and values the human dignity of all of, of humanity. And he was accused of paying people to convert to Christianity as if that's ever been a tactic anywhere that the church has used. And so I ended up holding a vigil for him in front of City Hall in Roseville, California, just small, small town, not a big national impact by any stretch, but it was an opportunity to be able to at least take this personal story and, and make it known to people in our community. And small though it was, uh, I know that his family appreciated it and other people who had close family and friends martyred for the sake of the gospel in India appreciated it. We can never underestimate the value of letting other people know that we hear their stories and we know their stories and we honor them and honor what they've, they've had to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. I currently have um, two friends that have been doing missions work in India, and I've been concerned about the implementation of all the anti-conversion laws and the extreme Hindu nationalist rhetoric and the impact that this can have on non-Hindus, as I've been following closely what's been going on in India over the past 10 years. And recently, I wanted to see how my friends were doing and if they'd be willing to make any type of public statement about their experiences. And they all told me that in the past, they would have, but for safety reasons now, they can't make any public comments. In fact, I'm being very careful not to say who they are or where they live. <laughs> or what work they were doing in India. 
One of them is actually back in the United States now and doesn't know if they're going to be able to return to India again. They were involved with a church that trained Dalit women how to make crafts for a living. They um, worked hand-in-hand with that church community to empower the poor in their community and educated women on personal sanitation, basic health needs, that kind of thing. And they were threatened by police and told that they had to leave soon or suffer the consequences. And so they were forced out of of, um, India. Uh, They were doing incredible public good, and the Indian community didn't like that. The ministry is still functioning, but they are unable to get any kind of outside assistance now. It, It all has to come from within India. They can't make appeals to people in other countries to send in money or people to help them. It's not allowed. The Indian government won't let them do that. And they're afraid to go public with the names and locations because of the very real threats of what's now being called transnational repression. And that's a related topic because while I am deeply concerned about the persecution of Christians in India, it's bleeding over into the global sphere now. I am even more concerned about transnational repression. And what that is, transnational repression is when a foreign government has agents operating in foreign countries, you know, countries that aren't their own, actively involved in influencing elections, but also in instilling fear and intimidation and sometimes even murdering people that are speaking out against their home government. And that is very much a reality right now. And India is the biggest culprit. A lot of people in America are focusing on Russia and China and their involvement in transnational repression. But India is the big problem. India is is directly responsible for assassinations now of people in foreign countries. It's, it's, it's horrific. And this affects people like all of us here. Any Christians in the United States that speak up against the Indian government can be targeted by the Indian government just for speaking out against human rights violations in India. That's very much a present reality right now. I know Peter has experienced that firsthand in the past. Uh, I've experienced it on a small degree, um, but it very much is a reality and very much is, is a concern. And that should concern everyone who cares about human rights. We need to be able to speak up. We need to pray about what's happening in India, but we also need to tell our elected officials as election season is coming up, we need to make sure that both sides who are pursuing office or or three sides or four sides, whoever it is that's involved in pursuing the office, that they're aware of and are discussing transnational repression. Because it might just be that the politicians that we're trying to get in are getting funded by the RSS. That's very much a reality, and they're going to be calling those favors in and coming against the people that are speaking out against what's happening in India. So that, that's very much a, a big concern of mine, and it's a concern that the, the Christians that I've spoken to who have done work in India in the past are very much concerned about. They're so scared of it that they're, they're like I said, they're not even willing to go public right now with their stories and they want to make sure that if they do say anything, their names aren't mentioned or, or where they live right now in the United States isn't mentioned because they're afraid 
of transnational oppression and possibly getting attacked by agents of the Indian government. So I, I do want to thank everyone for gathering together tonight. It's great to hear people from so many different backgrounds sharing their concerns about what's happening in India right now. And uh, um, I think it's important that as we engage in these conversations, we also um, recognize this has a global impact. And this is something that, um, you know, it's going to be harder to get people to speak up against this because of the fear of what's happening. And we need to make sure that our all of our governments are not just aware of what's happening in India, but are aware of what India is doing now in our own soil as well. Thank you. Thank you for bringing out the international relevance of this issue, Father Joshua. Uh, I'm definitely convinced that transnational issues are going to be at the forefront in coming years and decades, and we've only begun to see the beginning of it. So it's it's important that we are, are aware um, and active and alert. So our next panelist is Susan Corinne. She is a member of Pax Christi, the Catholic Peace Movement. In 2015, she put her Catholic faith into action by serving with community peacemaker teams. It's an organization that goes into crisis zones and support the local peacemakers. She has also served in the West Bank, Palestine, escorting children to school past Israeli sol soldiers and settlers. She is active in Maryland with movements opposing the rise of India's Hindu nationalist movement. Welcome. Thank you, Jamie. I, I want to speak to the question of how we can evangelize the American church to better um, be engaged in, in the issue of um, anti-Hindu work. And I don't claim to have the answer, but I wanted to share two Christian uh, models that have been used that I found to be evangelical. One was actually something that I used um, to evangelize my Christian community to another persecuted um, community. And the other was something that actually evangelized me. So the first one is this, something called the Kairos Documents. And this was started in South Africa in 1985. And Kairos means time or season or an acceptable time. And basically, 150 uh, clergy got together from South Africa, and they, they wrote a, um, based in theology, but it was about um, their persecution, what they planned to do about it, and what they wanted the um, the diaspora and the community to do about it. And I had become aware of Kairos through Kairos Palestine. At the time, I was working with the Palestinian Christian community and the Patriarch of Jerusalem, the Catholic bishop, wrote Kairos Palestine, and all the other bishops signed it. And basically, these Kairos documents say three things. First of all, they highlight the persecution and injustice that they have, again, all from a theology standpoint. So with South Africa, they were talking about apartheid. With Palestine, they're talking about the military occupation and confiscation of land. The second um, component of it is that they they affirm that they are going to respond to the persecution in a Christian way, that they are going to use nonviolence, but nonviolent resistance. And they actually detail how that is. So in South Africa, we, we are initiating boycotts. In um, Palestine, it was the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement. And then the last thing was an open invitation to the international Christian community 
to be in solidarity with them and um, actually take uh, action. So this document wasn't meant to be sitting on a shelf. It was meant to be an evangelizing tool that just as the apostles walked out with their scripture and Paul walked out with their letters, this was meant for people to go out and evangelize. And the way that I ended up using it is Pax Christi, which is the Catholic peace movement. I had gone to my local chapter and I said, there's been no Catholic that has been endorsed or Catholic organization that has endorsed BDS. Why don't we do that? And they were really nervous about doing that. They totally understood what was going on, but um, they were worried about repercussions. But when we recouched the um, response to be um, within, within the Kairos Palestine framework, they decided to adopt it. So they they specifically say, we support the goals of the BDS movement, but the title of it is a response to Kairos Palestine. So it, it sort of gave them cover and six other Pax Christies immediately adopted it. I will also tell you that the bishop, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, wrote us a personal letter, um, and it was very touching to be laity to have the Patriarch write that. So, so it was a very good evangelical, evangelical tool. The second thing, which is what converted me to Christianity, is this whole notion of bearing witness and the way of the cross. And we've had a couple stories already from uh, Reverend Lichter and Reverend Howell about people who've martyred themselves. We are today. It's as a Friday in Catholic Lent, we go through the stations of the cross to um, sort of be closer to the martyrdom of Christ. And in, in Catholicism, we call this the cloud of witnesses, that these are the people that we look to, to inspire us and to bring us closer to God. And they are not isolated points, but they all sort of are interwoven together. So an example, you've got St. Stephen, you've got the martyrdom of Christ, and then you've got St. Stephen, and then it, you know, his martyrdom led to the martyrdom of the apostles. And then um, you've had this whole line of persecuted people who all respond and evangelize. And I became a Christian um, after I heard the story of um, Maximilian Kolbe, who was somebody in the Holocaust who gave up his life for another one. He was a priest. So, so it's a very, very powerful tool or a very, very powerful witness. It's a very awful and painful witness, but it does have um, a way of evangelizing people. It also has a way of building solidarity. So Christ's martyrdom uh, brought out Simon to lift the cross and brought out uh, Veronica to wipe his face. And um, we've already heard a couple stories of that I thought were really, really compelling that could be shared with the American Christians to better understand. And one of the stories that um, really has moved me very much is the story of Father Stan Swami, who's the Jesuit who was helping the Adivasis um, plight, and he was put in jail, and he was very defiant. He said, I will not be a silent spectator. And I think those stories are things that we need to start sharing. And the next speaker, Popeye, is going to also share a story of witnessing and, and using his faith and standing up. Um, the common themes that I think from these two examples, which is Kairos and bearing witness, are they, they incorporate a call to action for international solidarity. So it's not just saying this is happening to us. This is what I want you to do about it.
They also um, tend, both of these reach out to masses. So I know, Peter, you're talking about reaching out to clergy. Um, but, you know, Christ reached out to the masses when he was turned away from um from the temple. So, so again, both of the, both Kairos and witness are things that, that the average person or the average Christian could be evangelized. And then the other thing is there's a focus on the hero and not the villain. So I'm somebody, I talk a lot about Modi I, in Maryland. We talk about our Lieutenant governor, but I think that when you focus on, on those that are, are, are bearing witness, it, it draws people in a lot more. Um, another common theme is that these are all, um, both the Kairos document and people who bear witness, they're, they're playing the role of truth to power. And um, power doesn't like that, and it's very hard, but, but if you're you're convinced of the truth, um, you continue on. And then the last thing that I think was said uh, several times before is trying to bring in the hope, the Christian hope and the Christian light. And that even in the darkest, most uh, despairing moment, we are Easter people and we remember that the tomb was empty. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Susan. I uh, appreciate your message of courage and hope in the midst of the dark situation that this uh, that's being described here. So our, our next- I'd like uh, to jump in uh, briefly, Jamie, uh, to sure. speak about Father Stan Swamy. Uh, Susan, thank you so much for your comments. Um, for our listeners, I would like people to know that Father Stan Swamy was a Jesuit Catholic priest uh, in India who had devoted his life to um, uplifting, serving the Adivasi, as you called them. We would call them um, in, the English, in the English language, the tribal peoples of India, um, educating them, helping them to rise out of poverty. And um, he was a notorious critic of the current regime, Hindu nationalist regime in India. Uh, he was arrested uh, several years ago um, uh, along with a whole host of other people that were had charges slapped against them, uh, accusing them of this broad conspiracy. Uh, he was, I believe, uh, the only uh, clergy member, and I think maybe the only Christian. I know the only clergy member, and I think maybe the only Christian who was arrested in this whole conspiracy uh, 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 charges. And he died in prison as a martyr, as you mentioned. He died in prison. Um, actually, there were three, actually, there were three Christians. He's the one who died. Two others remain there. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Dale. And um, so uh, with that, I just wanted to touch briefly, highlight um, highlight that, uh, that instance and uh, bring a couple of uh, 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 details to it. Uh, with that, back to you, Jamie. Yeah, thank you for that addition. That's very helpful. Our next panelist is Pastor Brian Narin, who was born into a family that hated church, hated Christianity, and especially hated preachers. At the age of 14, he began a journey to know Jesus, and as a consequence of that, was disowned by his family and all alone at 14 years old. Uh, he has pastored the International House of Prayer Ministries Church for, uh, for the last 25 years in Tennessee. And now in 2002, he made his first trip to Nepal and then to India the next year. He helped establish a nonprofit in 2004 to teach Sunday school teachers in Nepal, India, 
and Bhutan. Since its start, they have trained over 250,000 uh, young people, 17 to 25 year, years old, to work with and love children. Uh, he was not actively involved in religious conversion or national politics until the Indian government essentially forced him into their uh, into their business in 2019. He was arrested. He was detained in India for seven months. Uh, welcome, Pastor Brian. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity tonight to be able to share some of my story. Uh, the information that I'll share tonight uh, is personal. It's it's real stuff that I've been involved in and lived through. Uh, and thank you to all the other panel members tonight for the things that you've shared and uh, the influence you carry and this goal that Peter has of being able to reach the church and pay attention to what is going on. Uh, when I went to Nepal the first time and then to India uh, in 2002, I became very excited, very passionate about the idea of helping poor children. I uh, came in contact with a man who was very uh, vigilant in that. He'd been doing it for 20 years, uh, on a poly uh, uh, preacher, pastor. And so I got involved with him. And over the next two years, we set up a nonprofit, and we began the process that you just described of being able to help children. And we've been able to minister uh, to children. And when I was first doing this 20 years ago, it was like being a Sunday school teacher's teacher. Uh, today, those Sunday school children from 20 years ago were the pastors of some of the largest and many churches, probably over 3,000 churches in Paul and Northeast India today, uh, because of this project that we've been actively working on and continue. Uh, over the years, it's been very uh, easy. Uh, I did four years of the Civil War in Nepal at the end of their war, and uh, even though there was complications and difficulties and in a war zone, uh, the Lord was gracious and kind, and everything we did prospered and did well. And things began to change for me. In 2019, I would have dreams. In my dreams, I would not be able to find my passport or my money. And if you don't have money or passport when you're traveling overseas, life is over. You stop. And uh, I felt like the Lord was giving me a, a plan or a, a warning me. And, of course, the question that intelligent people will ask, Brian, you had this dream several times. Uh, was God warning you not to go to India? Or, in my case, I think he was preparing me for what was ahead. In October of 2019, a group of us on our normal trip uh, to Nepal, traveling through India, uh, was accosted in the Delhi airport. Our immigration process was difficult. It was stressed. The computers were down. The declaration of the, the funds that we were carrying with us was made complicated. But we did that. We we, dec we uh, declared the money uh, to the security group, to the IRS group, and to the customs group was cleared and told to go to Bagdogra. As we arrived in Bagdogra, though, I was met at the plane, uh, taken into custody, eight hours of intensive interrogation, good cop, bad cop, uh, and all of the questions that had happened in Delhi and in Bagdogra included uh, the exact same sentence, something that I'd never been asked in 20 years of traveling or 18 years at that time of traveling to India. They asked me, are you a Christian? Will you meet with Christians in India? And will you give any Christians in India the money you're carrying with me? And the answer was yes, I'd done that and would con had continued to do that. Never had a problem. But in 10 different officers from Delhi to Bagdogra, they all asked exactly the same question. As time would go over my 
uh, long sabbatical, I call it, in India, uh, I would understand why. Uh, but eight hours of interrogation in Bagdogger led me to being placed in jail that night to meet a judge the next day. I went before the judge. He went through a process. I wasn't allowed to speak. They put me in a cage, and uh, they said, you're going to prison. And so they did. They took me to prison without any indication of anything other than you will get to come before the judge in about 30 days to try and get bail. Now, thankfully, uh, the group American Center for Law and Justice got involved, and they were able to get me out of the Indian prison in six days. And then I spent the next seven and a half months trying to gain my freedom. The first three months was an adjudication process to the Customs Department that I had to do on my own. The big surprise for most Americans is, is if you're arrested in India, the State Department does not help aid in any shape, form, or fashion. You must defend yourself and find yourself free or in prison. And a uh, big surprise for me, I thought no one was ever left behind if they were American citizens. Not true. Um, but I did finish a three-month process with the adjudication. I paid a fine. They would return my passport, not my money my passport and let me go and they started a second proceeding uh, to imprison me for seven years and in, in this process of going through the process things i think it's important to our listening group and audience tonight is uh the additional superintendent of customs from calcutta told me i've been ordered by the central government in delhi to build a case on you and send you to prison for three years the original charge was three years It'll later become a second charge for seven years. but And I said, but there's nothing that I've done that's wrong. I haven't broke the law. I've done everything just like I was supposed to do, according to your customs and way of doing things. And he said, it doesn't matter about what you did or didn't do. I have my orders, and we're going to send you to prison for three years. And so we worked through that process and was legally able to not uh, be sent to prison on those charges. Then they started the second case in January. Uh, to send me to prison for seven years. While being held on the second time, uh, awaiting a uh, person from the, uh, he said he was a, an important uh, political figure in West Bengal. I was being held in the area of Siliguri. And he said uh, he was an important member of the BJP. And he came to visit me. He also was a Rotary president of the local Rotary Club, which I'd been a part of and had done a lot of work in that area for poor children. And when he came, I thought, this is great. This is going to be some good news because here's a guy that can actually help me get out of the problem that I'm in. Because my only crime was helping the poorest of poor children get an education, to have the opportunity to rise up out of poverty and as I began to tell him and was excited, he became very angry, very upset. And he said, here's the truth, Pastor. He said, you're going to prison for seven years. We've decided there's nothing you can do about it. And he said, my, my hope is that while you're in prison, you die. And that everybody like you will stop coming to India and lying to the poor and lying to these children to believe that if they get an education, they can rise up and have uh, an exit to poverty and a good and a better life. He said, in fact, here's what we need in India. He said, we need the death of 300 million of our Indian citizens. Uh, if you do those numbers together, I think it comes out pretty close to all the Muslim Sikhs, Christians. 
And, and he said, that's what we want. He said, now here's what you can watch, because while you're in prison, for these seven years, we're sending you away. India will become a Hindu-only nation. Every person in India will convert to Hinduism, and not just regular Hinduism, but the Hindu twad, the, the nationalist idea that is so prevalent in the loud noise. Uh, he, he said they're all going to be converted to Hinduism. They're going to leave, or they will leave this country, or they will be eliminated. There is a large group sponsored by the RSS that have full plans of a mass genocide for anybody that resists the new nationalist movement called Hindutva. And, and it was quite alarming for me to hear somebody say that and really be excited. But as, as the days went through, I would go to court every Wednesday until COVID hit. I spent the first uh, six weeks of the COVID world shutdown in India in a closed uh, place by myself with one, one other guy that helped me get food. And uh, in, in that whole process, I kept coming across people who were part of the government, part of the judicial system, part of the political system. Even in West Bengal, people said, well, I can't believe something like that happened in West Bengal. Maybe the other parts of India. But there was a, a, always that common belief and idea that anybody who does not agree, convert, and join to this radical nationalist idea of Hindu Twilight will be murdered or kicked out of the country. Now, this has been four years ago for me, and it seems like a, you know it's becoming an older story because it's got a little history with it. And we, especially us Americans, you know, our, our, our whole life has lived in 30 minutes. What happened 30 minutes ago doesn't even matter anymore. We're moving on to the next news cycle of, of time. But this, this problem continues. May of last year, most would know, uh, on this group, but not in other places, that the there became this ethnic problem or this cultural problem in, in the state of Manipur in East Nepal. And it's been painted as a narrative between tribal groups against tribal groups. But here's the thing that's interesting. There is 70,000 people displaced, all Christians. They lost their home. They were moved out. They live on the benefit or the hope or, or somebody helping them. And even the government in the past two weeks has closed the supply of food off to those people. Hundreds of churches were burned in, in just a few weeks' time. Thousands of homes burned in just a few weeks' time. Over 150 people were murdered in those few weeks of time. Here's the fact that nobody ever seems to talk about. Of those first churches burned in Manipur, over 200 of them belonged to the Mete Christian people. Supposedly, in the news, all Metes are Hindu and all of, of the cookies are Christian. But it is an attack against Christianity, and it continues to move. And the reason I know it moves is I have a very good friend who I, I met while I was in Siliguri, and he works uh, with a Bible school group there. And he, he was there when I went this time that I was arrested, and he's remained there for the last four years. But just last week, the uh, home affairs investigators came into the school. Fortunately, my friend had gone to the mall with his wife to buy some groceries. But they came in and they interrogated uh, the people in the school uh, and for about an hour looking for my friend. 
Uh, they left, so we'll be back, and they've opened an investigation, and they're, they're very aggressive about everything. Well, when they came back to arrest my friend, we had already helped and worked, and he began moving different locations and staying hidden. Uh, thankfully, he arrived home yesterday after all of this week and a half of running and hiding and, and trying to get away, keep from being arrested like I was in Siligary, India. His crime? was being a foreigner doing missions work. I spoke to a friend that I made while I was in my time of being incarcerated there. It's a part of the Indian government in West Bengal. I asked him, I said, what is going on? He said, we have received an order recently, since the first year, we've received an order to remove every foreigner out of Northeast India, primarily white Western people. They assumed that if you're Western, if you're white, you would only be in the Northeast for one reason, to be missionaries. And they've been ordered to have them all removed, to take them out of all of Northeast India. And that was what he was facing, is because he was from Idaho, uh, a very American-looking guy, and his wife, they, they came to, to put him out of the country. So that is the continuing situation in India. Nothing has ever gotten better. It's become much, much worse. And one thing that I'd like to finish with is maybe a call to action or an idea that works. And, and, and I have two uh, stories about what I know that I know. While I was there, it took a long time for my friends and the people connected to get the attention of the uh, American government. In the end, President Trump uh, went to uh, Prime Minister Modi on my behalf and demanded my release, and it went through, and, and I was able to come home instead of spending the next seven years in prison in India. But to get to our president, even more difficult, to get to my senators, it took thousands of letters. One petition had 113,000 signatures on it. President Trump told me personally, he said, my uh, mail executive that takes care of the mail and stuff came to me, and this is just before he talked to Prime Minister Modi on April the 1st of 2020, said, sir, you must do something. We received 2,000 letters yesterday to get the pastor released. Politicians, probably most of them, have great intentions to do well, but all of them have the same thing in common. They don't go to work until you wear them down. In the Christian faith, it's the... Uh, the widow and the unjust judge and the widow finally wore the judge down and he said, just give the woman what she wants so she won't come back. I was freed by President Trump, not because of his love and compassion. And, and, and he was very much about getting uh, foreign hostages released. I was a 50th that he had released, but he took care of my case because there was so much noise and so much continuing voice of, do something, say something, do something, say something. The call to action is that we, if we could mobilize somebody somewhere in the Senate to speak up and to say something, then India's got a better chance of that Christian community that we love not facing a genocide. The last part is, uh, and a couple of us on here got involved 16 months ago with a uh, Hindu American group that was raising money to bulldoze churches in India. And that organization is in Frisco, Texas. We went there, 
Uh, Peter was very involved in getting with the government and the people. And after 16 months of continual, I, I went to back. I've been back to Texas last year myself at least five times after the original uh, meeting that we had in Frisco. Last week, the Internal Revenue Service announced that they are investigating that Hindu group as a terrorist group, which happens to be operating as a 501c3. My point is that if you want something from the government and the government has the ability to fix some things, you got to wear them out. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to scream because they'll never listen to you at all. But you just have to keep saying like the widow did for the unjust judge. Give me justice. They will. They'll do the right thing because they're there to do the right thing. They just got so many other voices in their head that they don't hear you until there's been a hundred times or more. Thank you for the opportunity tonight to share the story. And uh, thank you to those in the panel tonight that are sharing their heart as well. Yeah. Thank you, Pastor Brian, for sharing the story of your arrest and your incarceration and also helping us uh, understand, you know, through through the illustration of the nature of the persecution. Uh, and then also, I, I think it was instructive about how you were freed. It gives us uh, some insight. Next uh, panelist is Pastor Benjamin Marsh. He's a pastor of the Christian Missionary Alliance at First Alliance Church in Winston-Salem, where he lives with his wife and two daughters. As an advocate for people with mental health disorders and developmental disabilities, he sits on the board of Monarch NC, North Carolina. He previously represented the Dalit uh, Freedom Network in Washington, D.C., and he will speak about why American Christians are ignoring what is happening in India and how to potentially awaken them to the issue. Welcome, Pastor Benjamin. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity to share. I'm very humbled to be included in this group. About 20 years ago, I went to India for the first time. Um, I was an undergraduate. I uh, had no idea what I was getting into, but I've been invited to learn from Indian Christians about their work, about uh, their persecution, uh, about what was going on amongst the Dalits at the time. Uh, and after that, I was an advocate, a lobbyist, essentially, in Washington, D.C., for almost four years. Uh, I had the privilege, he probably doesn't re re uh, remember me, but I, I met Dr. Dial a few times when I was there and was privileged to work alongside him. Uh, we had some unique things that happened during that time. The State Department uh, really strengthened their identification of India as a significant violator of human rights and particularly religious freedom at the time. And also, uh, I was part of the group that went to the State Department, and we were able to have uh, Chief Minister Modi's visa revoked at the time because of significant violations of um, religious freedom in the state of Gujarat, going back to his pogrom against Muslims in 2002. Uh, since then, was called into ministry, and I haven't remained as connected, but thankfully through Peter and our engagement um, online and just reconnecting with the issue, have been very grateful uh, to be able to kind of rekindle what had been a doused flame with respect to persecution uh, in India, and then also working with the lower caste and the outcast in India. Um, and I don't have a lot to share uh, by way of anything more than what you guys have done. Uh, the stories have been amazing. Talk about rekindling a flame. It's like taking a uh, a blower to a, a small flame and all of a sudden you've got a giant bonfire. So thank you all very much for everything you've shared. But I do want to just tag along with what Pastor Brian shared just now. 
with respect to how can we make churches care in the United States? How can we specifically bring this to a point of contact that has an actionable outcome? And there have been some good ideas that have been shared. But the number one thing that we found when I was working in Washington, D.C., uh, was that you have to have a hyper-focused ask that comes from India that can be done through the American political system or through the American religious church system or a hybrid of both. And that ask has got to be identifiable. It's probably a short-term ask. It's not just something big like, please care about India, but it's got to be something identifiable, a letter that's going to be sent from the United States government, a policy that needs to be implemented at the State Department level or at the level of the president, um, as in the case of Pastor Brian, somebody that we're trying to get out of jail, <laughs> whatever it might be, if you don't have that focal ask, then what happens is that India just becomes part of that milieu of countries where bad things happen to Christians all across the globe that a church might pray about kind of generically on a Sunday morning or put into a prayer letter, but not actually draw its people into a um, a, a write-in campaign, into a letter campaign, into um, making social media posts or videos or, or actually contacting their representatives or senators of the White House or whomever. So, my recommendation to everybody as as this group continues to remain in contact in whatever way that it does as listeners online consider how we can go somewhere with all this information is to try to identify prayerfully identify what is that uniquely leveraged focal point that ask that can be brought to churches that uh, are across the spectrum in the United States, conservative or liberal, doesn't matter. If you can identify something that people can unite around, the church does move. Um, a second thing that came to my mind that I just wanted to share with everybody is that we are in a unique position in American po political history where neither party is particularly interested in the topic of international religious freedom. It's taken a backseat to national security interests across the board. That was a little bit different with George W. Bush and certainly before W, where there, there, there was a kind of a, a kindled flame of international religious freedom. Um, but that, that changed significantly uh, following the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the global war on terror and all of that. Uh, so we have to be able to take our advocacy outside of the boundaries of our political parties and reclaim a universal Christian identity that allows us to minister to the persecuted, to kind of metaphorically visit the prisoners across the globe, to suffer with those who are suffering, uh, to sit with the persecuted, to, to understand Christianity and our Christian witness and our Christian political activity outside of uh, uh, the, the uh, political party realm, uh, especially because our parties and the, the, the leaders that our parties have elected have not made this an issue of overwhelming concern. Um, it, it's just changed from when I was in DC 20 years ago uh, that you had uh, people that were in the house that you could sit down with their political advocacy director and mention uh, India and they would say persecution, they would say untouchability, they would say uh, women women's rights issue. Now it's all about limiting China, uh, it's all about just the overwhelming national security concerns for the Southeast Asian uh, realm down there. So just to encourage everybody, take your advocacy outside of the normal channels, focus on Christendom, uh, right and left, 
uh, or any other part of the spectrum, up or down, whatever part of the spectrum you're on. And if we can identify that focal point, that ask, to get a group that is identifiably Christian across all of those different political spectrums, uh, you, you're able to, to really affect change in a very meaningful way. Uh, I think that that was something that we were able to do several years ago. I know there's still good work going on, but obviously uh, it's not at that national level like it used to be. And it could be, again, if we were able to kind of draw ourselves around the right approach. So thank you all very much. And I'm encouraged. Thanks for rekindling the flame in this old battle axe. (laughs) Well, thank you, Pastor Benjamin. Uh, We appreciate you sharing your insights and uh, especially how to honor the persecuted in a nonpartisan way. Um, next, I'd like to welcome Robert Stubblefield, who is a member of the Progressive Baptist Convention. He's also a poet, author, activist, and organizer. He's active in the Washington metropolitan area. Uh, he is a member of the Beth- Bethesda sorry, African Cemetery Coalition, Racial Justice Now, um, and several other coalitions. He's also well known through his work for his work throughout Maryland. Uh, but when he's not fighting the power, he can be found exercising um, or spending time with loved ones, family and friends. Uh, welcome, Robert. Thank you so much, uh, Ms., um, Mr. Bennett. And thank you so much for everyone who's told their stories about their experiences witnessing the persecution of our brothers and sisters or the Church of India. You know, the perspective that I have, and I come from not just the African-American spiritual experience, but also that from liberation theology and social gospel, is that the silence of the American church overall for me is deafening. And what I mean by that is that we feel that, yes, it is a problem, but it is a problem that is happening over there. It is that same attitude that had church in Germany back in the 20s had when Nazism and fascism in Italy under Mussolini was rising. And then by the time the church was able to try and do something, all of a sudden Hitler, Mussolini were in power. Sometimes I wonder what our silence would be like if the story of the Virgin Mary took place not in Bethlehem, but took place in India? What would happen if, instead of dealing with a King Herod, son of Antipater, that Virgin Mary had to deal with Narendra Modi? I feel that Mother Mary, as she would go to church, she would be forced to undergo a practice called garwapsi. And I know I probably didn't pronounce that right, but uh, garwapsi means return. What means returning home it is basically forced conversion. What would happen, I feel, is that while she was undergoing that forced conversion, or if she didn't convert, she remained true to her faith, saying, I serve the living God. Would the unborn Messiah be ripped from her womb and then stomped on the ground? Would we be silent then, or would we be demanding that the people involved, or that Narendra Modi and his ilk, be sent to the International Criminal uh, International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity. If that was the case, we all would be roaring and not on deaf ears. We would be riding our politicians. We would be marching in the streets and we would ground this economy to a halt if that happened. 
if we if that happened. Problem is though, and as I think um Father Lecter touched on, is that Hindutva isn't just a problem that's happening over there. It's happening here in the United States. It's affecting our American politics. Not just our American politics, but internationally. If I can just touch on international aspect for, for a quick minute and not get into how it's affected our American politics. Back in January of 2023, when Lula da Silva was reelected, they had their own version of January 6th, only happened on January 5th. And what, what, what the intelligence community found is that the hard right in Brazil was communicating with the hard right, the Hindu nationalists in India. They were conversing with the counterparts, the Zionist counterparts in Israel. And the reason why I bring that up is because we are seeing in real time a new axis of evil. Evil philosophies of Hindutva, of Christo-fascism of Zionism are now rearing its ugly head in real time. And how that's affecting our American politic is that anytime someone calls out, just like when people say, criticize the Israeli government for its war crimes, and they're called anti-Semitic, if you even mention Hindutva, if you call out caste discrimination, if you call out caste discrimination, you're labeled Hindu-phobic. They're already trying to change the textbooks so they don't talk about caste, even though caste is real, even though caste discrimination has found its way into America to the point where Seattle passed a resolution banning and outlawing caste discrimination. And in California last year, despite a hard fought battle to get SB 403, Governor Newsom did not sign. He vetoed the bill and he vetoed the bill. Because he said, quite frankly, well, there's already laws in the books that protect against discrimination. But as other people point out, it does not list caste, which there was a bunch of testimony from people from the Dalit community, from the Indian Christian community, talking about how they've been discriminated against because they're Christian, because they because they had to work with their more dominant caste uh counterparts in fields like tech, in the fields of healthcare, in fields like even in arranged marriage, even in marriage situations. You also see this in the Maryland political side, where a lieutenant governor by the name of Aruna Miller ties to groups like the overseas friends of the BJP. He's taken $65,000 from overseas friends of the BJP. And whenever she's been called out for that, First, she denies it, and then when confronted again with the facts, because we have to remember politicians, they have to file their uh, financial campaign contributions. She then goes on the war path. She says, these people have been good to me, and I'm not going to turn them away. Or she'll play both sides. Or she says, well, I, so, I, don't, I support Modi's economic reforms, but I don't support his social reforms. That's like saying you support Hitler because of the Autobahn system, but you don't support him because of the Holocaust. You either support fascism or you are against fascism. And the reason why I point that out from a Christian perspective and from an activist Christian perspective is because, as Jesus, as other, as other um, panelists have said, the Matthew 25, that what you do to the least of your brothers you do to me also, but I'd like to point out the book of Prophet Isaiah chapter 117, which states to do good, 
to seek righteousness and to do justice. We are mandated faith to challenge the status quo, to support the sick, to call, to support the poor. And that's very important because anyone who has read the Bible and studied the Bible will tell you that God's ire against Israel was always cast out when the poor were oppressed. When people, like it says in the book of Isaiah again, woe unto those legislate evil who hurt the poor and make women and children their prey. We are seeing this in the context of not just the Indian, our brothers and sisters in India, but we're seeing its infiltration in our politics. It's already bad enough that we are trying to fight a battle as the American church is fighting a battle dealing with its legacy of white supremacy and dealing with its own battle of reparations. But now we are seeing another form of fascism that is infiltrating that's already taking an already precarious situation and has the potential to make it worse. Christofascism and any form of fascism which seeks to create an ethnostate by genocide, because let's be real here, what is the ultimate end goal of fascism? It is the genocide of those who deem, who, are, who they, people in power deem to be less than. We have a duty, a calling, a mandate, if you will. The Reverend Howard John Weasley states, like Jesus, to be an enemy of the state, to challenge the status quo, to call out evil, to support the poor, to support the sick, and to remember the liberation roots of our, our faith. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to end quickly here because I know that I want to be respectful of people's time. But I just want to end with this. St. Oscar Romero had a quote that to me is very, very powerful. He says that is the duty of the church call out evil, to do justice, to support the marginalized, because when the church does that, the church finds its own salvation. It's bad enough that a group like the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, a, a group that even the CIA, a federal a government agency notorious for overthrowing democratically elected governments in other nations, has called the VHP a violent, hard right-wing Hindu nationalist group, was able to use a high school to celebrate Ram Jamabumi, which was really the celebrating the desecration, the anniversary of the desecration of the Babi Masjid, was able to take place in a public high school, despite the public out outcries from public communities, the Muslims, the Dalits, the cities, and the Indian Christians. But the fact that the county executive not only went to that high school, but issued a proclamation saying that the VHP has been doing good works. If that is not a sign that we as Christians here in America should be concerned, that I don't know what it is. I will continue to fight. I will continue to stand with my marginalized brothers and sisters to call out this evil and march with them and boycott and do whatever. But I cannot do it alone. We have power here. There is power here in our communities. We must see ourselves 
as a grand liberation movement so we can truly have the beloved community that Dr. King and Oscar Romero and those who came before us have fought for, bled for, and gave their lives for. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Robert, for bringing your insights on Hindutva, uh, religious and caste discrimination. I, I also, you know, recognize that the Christian duty toward the poor and oppressed, it's a uni universal duty uh, commanded by our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So thank you for sharing your insights. Uh, our final presenter today is Reverend Father Stephen Macias, uh, who is the rector of St. Paul's Anglican Church in California's Silicon Valley. He also serves as headmaster of the Canterbury School. He played a key ro uh, role in establishing, and he continues to support the pastoral duties of a congregation affiliated with the Church of South India within his parish. Before the ministry, he worked in the California State Legislature and with various social justice nonprofits in California and Washington, D.C. Uh, Father Macias and his wife, Sarah, reside in Los Altos, California with their four children, and he will offer our concluding remarks. Well, thank you, Jamie, and I'm really appreciative of your moderation here. And of course, your faith tradition is important to this conversation as well. And I just want to recognize that for a minute because of our conversations. We mentioned Dr. King a couple times tonight, and the Orthodox Church has always been a, a great advocate for social justice, uh, where we, of course, have the memory of Archbishop Yakovos, blessed memory there, the Greek uh, Orthodox uh, Archdiocese Arch Archbishop, <laughs> who walked with. Uh, Martin Luther King there at Selma. But I think his story can dovetail into the stories we want to tell tonight. Uh, he, of course, was from Turkey and uh, grew up understanding the connection between religious persecution for a Christian and economic persecution. You know, he came to America, I believe, as a deacon after experiencing the difficulty that religious hardship had uh, for him in kind of a war-torn place. And a similar situation is happening now in India. Uh, but to make sense of that, I think a lot of our conversations tonight have been about the religious identity. And somebody who is watching this presentation might get the, the sense that our main motivation is a religious ideal. And I remind us of our the words of our Lord Jesus who said that man does not live by bread alone. Of course, we have a, a religious hunger for the word of God to, to be uh, evangelists and to care for the, the spiritual development of all men. Uh, but just because we don't live by bread alone doesn't mean we don't live by bread. <laughs> we still have to feed the folks. And uh, that economic, that social uplifting is a crucial part of our faith. And us as uh, American Christians have a, a really important role in developing that around the world, not just as a religious idea, uh, but sometimes when we talk about the politics of it, we forget how these things are connected, how our spiritual identity, religious identity, uh, those type of things are connected to the economic and social realities on the ground. Um, so the figures that I, I'd like to bring to us in our closing remarks are figures who followed the same pattern, who came from India uh, to the United States and then went back to India, uh, largely with the independence movement. Um, I think of men like B.R. Ambedkar, uh, who grew up in the Indian system, uh, grew up as a Dalit, as a part of this caste system, saw the the great danger and pernicious nature of that system, comes to study at Columbia, experiences uh, the American political system and brings that back. And we consider him one of the founding fathers there in India. And of course, I've heard most of this story from men like John Dayal, who 
He probably remembers we did an interview together back in 2015, so many years ago. Uh, so it's great to see you again, brother. Uh, but Mbenkar's message and the uplifting of the Dalits is a, is a model for us as well. What we have in pleasure and abundance here in the United States, we can export. <laughs> what we have in our political freedom, we can export. And the anti-conversion laws that are being used in India today uh, can be overturned by our influence here in the United States. As Mr. Bennett recognized in my introduction, my previous career before I took on the, the cloth was in the State Assembly here in California. And I learned in that process that it is uh, an, a great advantage for us to have a big silent majority, right? <laughs> so sometimes we're overwhelmed by the idea that not everybody's participating, as we've heard tonight, the, the deafening uh, silence. But uh, when there are fewer people engaged, your voice carries much more power. And so rather than being overwhelmed by that sense, we actually have, uh, when we do speak up, our voice carries more weight because people aren't willing to pick up the work. So uh, to give some action steps, Peter asked me to talk about uh, what could we do practically to move the agenda forward. And I, of course, echo uh, Pastor Marsh's comments, sincerely be specific, work towards that. Uh, but I also want to point out that India depends on American diplomacy uh, as a matter of uh, medical uh, innovation, as a matter of economic innovation, as a matter of international aid and support. There is a, a lot of money that flows from American taxpayers into India. And with that, you as an American taxpayer, I'm speaking to our general Christian audience, carry with that that amount of money influence in dollars through your Congress and through your senators, through our American government system. And so as long as those dollars are flowing from American treasury to Indian treasury, uh, we can stipulate that things like anti-conversion laws ought not be used <laughs> in, with this type of financial system. Now, Bidkar, of course, known for uplifting the Dalits, but he's not uh, the beginning of the independence of the Dalits. I would say as a Christian, our obligation to India began 2,000 years ago, and I'm not speaking just merely of the spiritual sense, but of the journey of St. Thomas. Uh, one of the criticisms of Christians in India today is that we are some kind of outsider, that Christians have come to India to evangelize and take over, when in fact for 2,000 years the St. Thomas Christians have been there. It's been their nation uh, since there was a, a codified Hinduism, right? So this is important for us to recognize that, that India must be uh, a place where Christians are not just tolerated, but our tradition is recognized and we are a protected group of people. Now, the, the group that I work with here in our parish uh, is associated with the Church of South India. We've heard a little bit about them today. A lot of them are from Kerala, and <clears throat> uh, they live here in the United States and they go back to Kerala and there's always the stories of family members they want to rescue. Uh, but many of them end up like St. Thomas did. They get their way down to southern India and uh, they find themselves martyrs for the cause or socially, sometimes mortally as we've heard today from various pastors. It's unacceptable. Um, and as Christians, we must hear the call of the martyrs, the call of the blood in the ground. You must hear the call of those children who are suffering. And we must recognize the connection that we have, the obligation that we have as Christians uh, of, of power, of, of substance, that is those who have a voice and a dollar to go with it, 
to continue to work uh, and use our influence for the good of those in India. Uh, to close today, I also want to say that there's, there's a an ecumenical identity represented here, um, and to echo some of the comments beyond this, that it doesn't have to end uh, with our creedal uh, orthodoxy, that our ecumenical obligations are not just to other Christians, but all those who bear the image of God. And so we have to be advocates for all of the minorities of India, not just the oppressed, but representing the, the Sikhs, the, the Muslims, those who are also suffering under the the persecution of these anti-conversion laws, the subjugation under uh, Hindutva policies, and that we have an obligation to protect all mankind as image bearers of our, of our Heavenly Father. Uh, Peter's asked me to close us with a prayer, so I'm going to close us with a prayer from uh, our tradition called the Prayer for Social Justice. So, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, who has created man in thine own image, Grant us grace fearlessly to contend against evil and to make no peace with oppression, and that we may reverently use our freedom, help us to employ in the maintenance of justice among men and nations. To the glory of thy holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Father Macias, for your words and for your prayer. Uh, the courage of those who have already suffered in India today is uh, a kind of echo of the words of St. Paul that he wrote to the Corinthians when he said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Thank you for joining us for this webinar to our panelists, our audience alike. We're grateful that you've taken the time to engage this important material. Uh, we cannot close out without wishing a happy birthday to Reverend Cook, who was proudly born on the day the Peace Corps was established by President Kennedy. So happy birthday, Reverend. Didn't want to let that go without mentioning. Uh, Peter, any final comments? Yeah, thank you, Jamie. And I deeply appreciate you moderating this uh, to all of our panelists. I reached out to Jamie. Uh, he and I spoke yesterday, and uh, we, when we spoke, we're back and forth about trying to decide when we actually met or if we ever actually met. We don't know. Uh, we All that we know is that we've known each other for about 20 years. I really appreciate Jamie doing this, especially as this has now gone relatively late into the night for him, and he did not, he did not have to do this. Uh, to everybody else, uh, a couple of quick thoughts. Um, I'm humbled uh, that all of you have participated in this, and I'm, I'm very grateful, as I said at the outset, uh, because I think that this is what really needs to happen to see change occur, is for the American church across all traditions, I don't care what your background is, what your personal beliefs are, political, whatever they are, to unite on this issue. And until that happens, um, I don't think we're going to see a lot of change. Um, I have personally seen uh, what it can mean to Indians, uh, to Christians in India, when uh, Christians in America uh, stand up and speak out on this issue. Um, I, a couple of years ago, I believe in January of 2022, um, I conducted a seven-day hunger strike uh, just to raise general awareness about the issue of persecution of Christians in India. Father Joshua Lichter, one of our panelists, he uh, 
did a concluding interview with me um, on my final day of that hunger strike. Uh, but the major thing that I experienced throughout that was that as I was doing it, I had on YouTube and other social media outlets, hundreds, hundreds of Christians from India just commenting, reaching out, and expressing their immense gratitude that anybody was doing that, that anybody was paying attention. And all I was doing was not eating for a few days from my home in California at the time. Um, you know, to everybody, especially to our speakers from India, uh, very grateful for you, very grateful for your courage, and uh, your faithfulness, and um, our prayers are with you. Um, and I will do whatever, everything that I can to continue to advocate for you and encourage others to do the same. Uh, thank you, especially to people like uh, Pastor Brian, Pastor Ben Marsh, uh, Father Steve, uh, for the practical suggestions. And, and uh, also to, uh, to uh, Brother Robert, the same for the practical suggestions. Um, lastly, is just Whatever our differences are, whether it's across denomination, tradition, political perspective, theological perspective, I'm so grateful that one of the beautiful things tonight, as Father Steve mentioned, um, is that we have this ecumenical identity represented here where we are all coming together for an identical purpose, which is to stand up speak out for the least of these, in this case in India, where in India today, many of those people there in that country who are the least of these or the least of those, many of them are Christians, our own sisters and brothers in, in Christ. And so going forward, I would just say, let us please continue to go forward. Uh, this should not be a one-off. Hopefully this should be an educational event that will attract others. I would ask and encourage you to please share this with your own networks online or offline. And then let us please stay in touch and see what else we can do. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe and follow for more to come as we look forward to dialoguing once again on DOSA.